I will be reading the scripture today. It is Matthew 16, verses 13 through 23. Um, it'll be on the screens. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, it's pages 771 and 772. Again, Matthew 16, 13 through 23. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Thank you, Scott. Next week, we'll begin our Christmas sermon series, and we're going to be preaching slowly through Psalm 46. It's a psalm famous for all the commotion and turbulence within the psalm, yet also famous for the line, Be still and know that I am God. Our Christmas seasons tend to have plenty of commotion, just like the first Christmas, actually. But our Christmas seasons should also have moments of stillness to know that God is God, just like the first Christmas had. But that's next week. This week, we finish our 12-week sermon series on the local church. I want to start with four pictures of buildings, and just for a moment, see if you know any of them. It's probably not going to be true, but here's the first. Anybody know where or what this building is? There's a flag, which is hard to see, but it's down in the front. It's a United States flag. Okay, that, so that's the embassy, the United States embassy building in London, England. All right, next picture. That is not have the flag there, but it sh could be, because <laughs> it's also an embassy. But this one's in New Delhi, so it's in India. It's a, let's go to the next one. There's a theme. <laughs> Any guesses what, this, what type of building this is? Oh, it's, a, it's an embassy. Good job. So it's an embassy slash consulate. Now, it doesn't exist yet, uh, as I understand it. Um, Lagos, Nigeria, being built. Uh, it's under construction, but 2026 it'll exist. So consulate being embassy and like extra stuff. Um, okay, last picture. That's just a McDonald's. 
That's, that's not an American embassy. That's a contrast. So it feels like that maybe, that we're exporting McDonald's throughout the world. That's in Jakarta, but uh, not an embassy. Anyway, so as we look at the passage this morning, like we, we gave the sermon series the subtitle, God's Antidote for an Anxious and Apathetic Age. That's, that's, I will build my church. That's the, the anecdote is... Jesus building his church in this anxious and apathetic age. As we look at the passage this morning, we're going to see how the metaphor of a local church as an embassy produces, um, or I'll say it this way, how God teaches us through that metaphor, embassy as a local church, how God makes his church the antidote for an anxious and apathetic age. So if you join me in prayer, we'll pray one more time. Heavenly Father, there's many around us, but I I know at times we can feel this within us, either the poison of anxiety that can become at times crippling, whether we think about our own small little worlds or the big world, and there can be an apathy, an indifference as well, not just for those outside the church, but even for those within. And Lord, I pray that as we've preached and now preach again this morning, looking at your words of Scripture, the promises you have for us, the commands you intend for us to obey, that you would build us into the kind of church you desire us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's possible for a husband and wife who love each other dearly to get so wrapped up in doing other important jobs that they can miss doing other important jobs, or the one important job, in a sense. I think of the phrase, empty nesters, which describes parents who have poured themselves out raising children, the children God gave them, and now they have an empty nest. And sometimes when that happens, the couple can then look at each other after more than maybe 20 years of raising children and think, but who are we now? Like as a couple, who are we? And sometimes they don't just think it, sometimes they say it out loud. And they should. But it's also a question they could have been asking five years before or ten years before the nest was empty because a clearer picture of what marriage is for might even help them raise the children they have. I bring this up not so much to talk about marriage or children or empty nesters, but to talk about us as a church. We've been giving a lot of time this fall especially over the last month, to talk about launching a church, sending a church out of the nest, so to speak. And I think we should be talking about it. It requires tremendous effort for our little church to then send out another little church. It takes a lot of work. But I don't want to get to next year or the year after we've planted the church and we all look at each other and say, but what are we here for? Like, who are we now that we've done the thing we've been talking about? What are we here for? In 14 months after Midtown Community Church launches, Lord willing, 
There will still be a church here called Community. And we need to discuss who we are and how God has wired us and what he's put us here to do. Without a sense of God's purpose for us, we'll flounder. God calls, excuse me, God calls our church. And I'd say the same for that matter for Midtown Community Church and all churches. God calls all churches to be an embassy of the heavenly kingdom. God calls us to be an earthly outpost of the heavenly kingdom where the rule and reign of God is cherished and sung. We're called to be a place that when you step inside among the people of our church, you're coming out of Susquehanna, out of Harrisburg, out of Pennsylvania, out of the United States of America, out of, in a sense, this world, and into heaven. That's how an embassy works. You may be in London or New Delhi or Lagos, but when you walk into a U.S. embassy, you're then in the United States of America. In the same way, to walk into a Christian church in any country, whether in the United States or England or India or Nigeria, is to walk into a heavenly kingdom. And it's in this way that God makes us an antidote for anxiety and apathy. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to the passage. I'm going to be building towards verse 19. So hopefully you still have a Bible open there in Matthew 16. But as we get there to verse 19, I want to re-say some of the same things that I said 11 or 12 weeks ago when we began this sermon series. We were preaching this passage. So I'm not going to say everything I said there, but let's say a few of those same things again. Verses 13 and 14 go like this. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said... Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus does not ask who he is because he doesn't know. Jesus is not wondering, who am I? He knows. This first question, who do people say that I am, is to set up the second question. Verse 15. But he said to them, quote, who do you say that I am? You'll have to decide this at some point, too, if you haven't already. It might be helpful to consider what the New York Times says about Jesus, or what your school teachers say about Jesus, or what your favorite pastors or authors say about Jesus, what your friends or spouse or parents say, but eventually the questions comes to you, what do you believe? Look what Peter answers in verse 16, and then how Jesus responds. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you. Blessed is meaning the fullness of God's happiness poured out into the life of an individual. Blessed are you in the fullest sense of the word. We use the word ironically often, hashtag blessed or something. This is blessed are you. 
Simon Bar-Jonah. That Bar is just a Hebrewism that means son. So some English translations just say son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus affirms Peter's answer is true. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the God's Savior of his people. And upon Peter and Peter's confession as the rock that God is going to build his early church, Jesus builds his church, and he still is. That's what we covered in the first sermon 11 weeks ago. Now we come back to verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This idea of tying something up or being tied up and being loosed. But it's here that I see the metaphor of an embassy, and I'm not the only one. Many other pastors, many other authors have written about this verse in this way. Now, I confess, most of what I know about embassies comes from movies, right? Also, conversations with a guy at our church named Jeff Davis. But aside from those two facts, uh, that's, that's most of what I know. In fact, one of the movies I was watching just a year or so ago took place in this European country, and it seemed like the whole movie was this giant journey to just get to the U.S. Embassy. The idea was that if the character could just get there, then everything would be okay. Outside the embassy, bad guys could be chasing after the main character and people could be protesting and burning flags and shooting and rockets and all of, the, all of that, but inside there'd be safety. But I was talking about this the other day with some people from church and one man told me about a time he was in Romania in the early 90s to adopt his children. There had been massive upheaval in the government in the preceding years. A dictator overthrown, in a sense. And on the morning he went to the U.S. Embassy, there were hundreds of people clamoring and climbing and trying to get inside the gates. And this man worked his way around the side and to the front of the gate. But only people with the proper identification were permitted to enter. And the man held up his U.S. passport. And he made eye contact with the guard. The guard cracked open the gate, reached out through the gate, grabbed him by the forearm and pulled him through the crowd inside the gate into the embassy. Let me read verse 19 again with that image in mind. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Hopefully you can start to see how the, Im- the metaphor of the embassy works. Wherever the church is, it's an outpost of the heavenly kingdom. And that church has the keys to bring people inside, to loose them or bind them, and also to exclude those on the outside. So what are the keys? According to the passage, Like, what are the keys? From this passage, the keys are proper confession of who Jesus is. Who do you say that I am, Jesus asked. What does Peter say? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. To call Jesus more than a man, to call him the Christ, to say you're the son of the living God, is to say that Jesus is the savior of the world. 
This is the key that opens the doors of heaven. And Peter gives, or Jesus gives Peter the ability through the preaching of the gospel, through the message of Jesus Christ, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the throne of the universe, the promise of his second coming. Jesus gives Peter, through the preaching of that, and a person's confession of that message, their embrace of it, to allow entrance into the Christian community, into local churches. Hence the line about binding and loosing. Now the imagery here is positive. The imagery here is positive. But later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus explains to the religious leaders his frustrations with them about this very issue. Listen to one of the critiques that Jesus levels against the religious leaders. This comes from Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus says, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Matthew 23, 13. You can see this idea. It's not using the language of binding and loosing, but it's using the language of kingdom of heaven and entrance into that kingdom experienced here on earth. Peter is to do it rightly, and they were doing it wrongly. The religious leaders say the key that opens the gates of heaven are a person's good works. If you just follow enough rules, our rules, then your entrance, that's your entrance into the kingdom of heaven, they say. Jesus, however, calls that shutting the door of heaven in people's faces. Which is why it's so wonderful that Jesus tells Peter something different. The key that opens the gates of heaven is a treasuring of Christ and confessing him as Savior, all revealed by grace from the Father. Two very different keys. Bring your good works, or confess Christ as Savior. One opens the gates, one doesn't. Now, I've been saying that the church is an embassy. But thus far, our passage, it's, it's really only Peter who's something of an embassy unto himself. In fact, all the yous in this passage are you singular. You, Peter. You, Peter. Not you all. So why would I say this applies to the whole church? Well, stay with me here for a minute because it's important. Just a page over, you may have to flip, but Matthew 18, there's another passage, and there's only two passages in the Gospels. Now, the New Testament uses the word church a whole bunch of times, but there's only two places in the Gospels that use the word church, Matthew 16, Matthew 18. So flip over to Matthew 18. I just want to read a couple verses. It's in the context of what Christians are to do when one Christian sins against another Christian. There's a perceived sin. How, how are they to handle that within the church? So Jesus spells this out. First, you go by yourself, and if that goes well, then you're done. If it doesn't go well, then you bring others, and it, then finally you would tell it to the church. So let me read this to you, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18. Look for this same language of binding and loosing. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. 
between you and him alone. So keep it as small as possible. Don't post it on Facebook yet. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's Old Testament allusions there. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, that's the whole church coming together say, this was wrong. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which is to say someone outside the people of God. Now, verse 18 is the one I was driving towards. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, should sound familiar, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's a whole bunch we could say about this passage if that were our sermon text. I'm only bringing it up to point out one thing. In verse 18, we read, Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's almost identical to what Jesus has just said to Peter. Peter, Jesus says, whatever you bind and loose, whoever you admit or exclude, based on confessions of faith about me, then heaven does the same. That's what he says to Peter. But here, in this passage, the yous are all plural. Now, it's, you can't really see that easily in English. The King James, they had these and thous, and it was more clear in some ways and less clear in others. But it had these and thous. We would say y'all. So in Matthew 18, Jesus is saying, church, y'all, whatever you... I want to make you sound like he's... Well, I'm not going to finish that sentence. All right, Church, Jesus says, whatever you bind and loose, whatever you all admit or exclude, based on confessions of faith, then heaven does the same. And when you put these two passages alongside each other, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, you see this widening out. What Jesus said just of Peter is his role in establishing the early church. He's then saying, this will become a thing for the whole church. Through gospel preaching, Jesus gives binding and loosing roles to the whole church. Now, okay. That's a lot of teaching. That's a lot. That was a lot. What does it mean for us? I'll go back to where I began. The local church is the sweetest and safest embassy in the whole world. And it's for anyone and everyone who wants in. As long as when they come, they come through Jesus. That's what it means for us. Now, two very practical applications, and I'm not going to give you two things that then we have to go do. Good news, we're already doing these, but I want to explain why we do them this way. First practical implication. We put the names of potential new members in our church bulletin. In fact, you're going to see that this week. These are potential new members that we'll put in there this week and next week, and then December 11th, our membership will welcome them into the church. We do this because our pastor elders have listened to their confessions of faith and we are presenting them to you, our membership, so that you can admit them into our embassy. Now here's a key point. We're not making them Christians. We're recognizing citizenship that already exists. That's what an embassy does. Remember the guard who sees the passport and pulls them in? He didn't pull the man in and say, okay, now you're a citizen. You were a citizen, and you belong in here with us. 
That's why we do it the way we do it. Second practical application. This is why we don't have a United States flag in our sanctuary. I love the United States. I am so thankful for this country. So thankful. Such a wonderful place. But when our church gathers each week, preaching the word, baptizing sinners, feeding saints the Lord's Supper, we're not doing so mainly as a people in a country called the United States of America. We're doing so as citizens of an embassy of a heavenly kingdom. Outside our church someday, now not today, it's just raining, but outside our church someday, there could be protests and chaos and hatred and burning of Christian flags. That would be very hard. Killing and destruction and carnage and blood, but inside, inside with the preaching of the gospel and the fellowship of saints on a level playing field where we all belong as citizens of heaven, there is safety and sweetness. Now it may be that Hershey, Pennsylvania claims to be what? <laughs> the sweetest place on earth, right? They're wrong. And now I'm death, deathly allergic to dairy. So that makes chocolate world for me the most frustrating place on earth. <laughs> um, but that's not why they're wrong. Hershey, Pennsylvania is not the sweetest place on earth because it's the church. When she is what she's supposed to be. When she is a place of joy and hope and fellowship and healing, of encouragement. When the church is what the church is supposed to be, an embassy built on grace. Then the church is the sweetest place on earth. And in this way, the church is, as I said before, the antidote to an anxious age where the world is anxious. The church is calm because we know we're built on a rock that can't be moved. So that's my first point. God invites you to experience the safety and sweetness of the local church. I'll come to a last point. It's very short, very short. And it comes from the other aspect of the metaphor. I'll say it like this. You and I must rightly represent the safety and sweetness of the local church. It's a big responsibility. I mentioned I watched a movie. This is a whole movie with 90 minutes where this character is stumbling through Europe. Sometimes literally stumbling through Europe. Everybody's trying to get him. Um, and he's trying to just, I can just get to the United States Embassy, right? Everything's going to be outside. You know, okay, every, outside everything's crazy. People are trying to kill him and whatnot. But inside he's safe. Or is he? Plot twist. The bad guys are running the embassy. I know. Mm, right. <laughs> it wasn't very good. <laughs> uh, it wasn't very good. Again, most of my in, uh, embassy knowledge comes from movies. But it's a silly movie. But what happens when bad guys run a church? Some of you have been there. Indeed, many people in our cultural moment feel themselves to be there. How does Jesus feel about bad guys running the church? 
We don't have to guess. I'll read words I've already read from Matthew 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Jesus sound happy? Do you seem pleased when those who have the real key to heaven throw it away, the real key of grace, they throw that away, make their own keys of works, and thus make it hard for people to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is not pleased. And the whole chapter has seven woes. It's woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. The whole chapter that that verse comes from is a rebuke to the religious leaders. Again, my last point in this sermon, and my last point in this sermon series is very simple. God commands us to rightly represent the safety and sweetness of the local church. And here's the antidote to apathy. To be apathetic is to be indifferent. It's to have no real cares or concerns about the outcome. Because, well, nothing great's at stake. Some of you have been watching the World Cup games. It'll be too controversial. Some of you are very apathetic about the World Cup. <laughs> you don't care at all. <laughs> I, was a, I was Thanksgiving. There were people in my family that did not care at all. And there were people <laughs> that cared an awful lot about the outcome of certain games. Now, you have permission to feel however you want to feel about the World Cup. Soccer games, football games, all right, so... Even that's controversial, right? I'll stop. I'll stop. Peyton Manning and what was it, Beckham, had the commercial going back and forth. Now, you didn't, might not have watched any of this, whether it was soccer or football. Anyway, you have permission to feel however you want to feel. But this passage is describing to you how the creator of the universe feels about his church. Great things are at stake. The church has a purpose for our presence in this world. Your participation in this particular embassy will either make us more like the heavenly kingdom or less. Your participation matters. Yes, there are great privileges with walking into an embassy, enjoying the sweetness of its fellowship and the safety that it provides. But the embassy is responsible And those dignitaries and ambassadors are responsible for representing their country well. If if ambassadors at a U.S. embassy act poorly, do you think that reflects merely on them? It does not. An embassy represents her country and her president, and local churches represent heaven and her king. This responsibility would be too much for us If that's all we had was the weight of the responsibility. But look at the hope that this passage ends with. Verse 20. Verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now that's strange. (laughs) Isn't it? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Yes, I am. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) Right? That's... That's very strange. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. That's strange. Keep reading. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
And Peter took him aside, and this is Peter the ambassador taking aside the president. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus told them not to tell others because they couldn't understand, at the time anyway, their conception of who the Messiah was, was bound up with power and victory and glory, which it is, but it's also bound up first with the Messiah who suffers and dies so that sins can be forgiven. And then he would rise to show that the gates of hell did not prevail over him. At the time, they didn't understand that the Messiah would suffer first. That's why they were told not to tell anyone. But the instruction to remain quiet was only for a very specific time. The time before Christ's resurrection and death. Excuse me, before death and resurrection. Now, now is the time for churches to arise and proclaim Jesus as the key to heaven. Now is the time of evangelism. Now is the time of discipleship. Now is the time of baptism. Now is the time of planting churches. Now is the time for more and better embassies to expand among every nation in the world, from Jerusalem to Judea, excuse me, to Judea, ah, I can't say it, from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria and the ends of the earth, echoing the words of Acts chapter 1, more and more outposts of heavenly kingdoms. I'll close with our 12-week series, reading the last words in the book of Matthew. Words that Pastor Ben preached so well a few weeks ago, fitting into our three months reflecting on the gospel. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Invite the music team to come forward and lead us through a time of response through singing. Now, full (laughs) disclosure, these are some of our favorite and most rowdy songs about the local church that we have. I hope you enjoy singing them with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news that this thing you're building called the local church, as fragile and weak and often as seemingly insignificant in the sight of the world and sometimes in the sight of the church, It's none of that. It is firm and strong and has the message that is the hope of the universe. I pray, Lord, that you would build up our church and other churches all throughout the city and throughout this world to shine your light and to be the antidote to an anxious and apathetic age. We pray this in Christ's name.